0: Arbor Day greetings and welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's final lecture series online edition. I'm Anthony Wong, program coordinator of the Institute. Thank you for joining us tonight for our book talk by Professor Mitra Rastigar from New York University. Uh, her book entitled uh, Tolerance and Risk, uh, How U.S. Liberalism Racializes Muslims uh, was uh, recently uh, published in 2021. Uh we're honored to have her here tonight to speak on it. Uh, tonight's talk will be will be moderated by Professor Linda Varghese from the Borough of Manhattan Community College at CUNY. Uh, tonight's talk is co-sponsored by the Department of Ethnic and Race Studies at BMCC, uh, the BMCC-HUNTER NMPC Bridge Initiative, Hunter College NMPC Project, and the Arabic Studies at Hunter College uh, Department. And without further ado, Professor Varghese, uh, Your
1: turn now? Yeah, Um, welcome everyone. Thanks for joining us Friday evening. Um, This is, as Anthony said, a talk, um, BMCC Department of Ethnic and Race Studies and Ari uh, talk. We had one last semester also. And so it is, um, I'm very happy that Dr. Rastegar is with us. I've been looking forward to this book coming out for a while now. Um, So I will just introduce her and then turn it over. Um, Mitra Rastegar is a clinical associate professor of liberal studies at NYU. Her work has been published in GLQ, Journal of Lesbian and Gay Studies, Women's Studies Quarterly and the International Feminist Journal of Politics. She received her PhD from the CUNY Grad Center and her research interests include transnational feminism, cultural studies, secularism, racism and racialization and affects and emotion. And so with that, um, Dr. Ruskar, I'll turn it over to you.
2: Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Varghese and uh, Anthony. Also, uh, thank you so much to the sponsors. And um, I really appreciate this opportunity to share my work with you. Um, And thanks to those of you who are joining us on this really beautiful Friday evening. Um, The book is a study of broadly circulating liberal discourses about Muslims and Muslim Americans as worthy of sympathy and tolerance in the context of the decades-long post 911 11 wars. So I thought I'd begin by talking about uh, the genesis of the book uh, and putting it in, in, a, in some autobiographical context. I moved to the US from Iran as a child in the early 1980s, which was after the Iranian Revolution had ousted the US-backed Shah and after the highly publicized um, hostage crisis where revolutionary Iranian students held Americans at the U.S. Embassy for over a year. And this became the first instance where a Muslim-identified movement was perceived as a direct threat to the U.S. So growing up in in the aftermath of this period in the U.S., I became aware of uh, the fact that Americans saw Iran only through the frame of spectacular and highly superficial images of yelling protesters, burning the American flag of turban-bearded men, making declarations, and of silent women and black chadors. And actually um, Edward Said's follow-up to Orientalism, the book covering Islam, really beautifully analyzes the affective power of these media images in this time period. But after September 11th, I started noticing um, Muslims in the media in in a new way, Um, not only caricatures and villains, but also many intelligent, well-spoken, sympathetic people from, from what I perceived as my part of the world. And it just really felt very different to me. So um, we might recall that in the weeks following September 11th, President Bush declared Islam is peace and that the terrorists had hijacked the religion and that Americans needed to respect fellow Muslim citizens. So this discourse uh, really, uh, even as it was never a, the dominant discourse, it was always a strain that was part of the war on terror. Um, I also had colleagues who were sympathetically asking me if I was Muslim—a question I had really never been asked before in the U.S. Um, people telling me about their appreciation of Iran through their readings of books like Azar Nafisi's *Reading Lolita in Tehran* or Madryn's *Cetrape*—sorry, *Persepolis*—and all of this was occurring while we saw increased reported hate crimes against those perceived as Muslims, the expansion of policing of Muslim and Arab communities and, um, of course, the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, As someone who was raised in a secular liberal family, but who had many religious family members, Christian Americans on my mother's side and Muslim Iranians on my father's, I was also curious about the role that liberalism and secularism could have in relation to religion. Um, What were liberal and secular values doing in the world and how should we understand this new diversity of images given the broader context of the war on terror. So once I began this project in earnest, um, sometime later, it was actually um, uh, a process before I arrived at the book's argument that even as discourses of tolerance about Muslims and Muslim Americans in the two decades following the attacks functioned to justify um, that even as there was this new diversity of images and these discourses, that they functioned to justify U.S.-led wars and military interventions while also policing Muslim Americans through a narrow and unstable construction of acceptability. So um, in the talk today, I want to first start with an example to kind of illustrate some of the dynamics I have found, then I'll lay out my central theoretical arguments around racialization, and then move through a few case studies that show the relationship between representations of Muslims abroad and of Muslim Americans. So, um, Since the figure of the good Muslim, which actually takes many different forms, is central to my analysis, I'd like to initially explain my argument through this image by Shepard Ferry, which was produced for the Women's March on Washington at the time of Trump's inauguration. The image shows, as you can see, a woman wearing a headscarf imprinted with the American flag. It was part of a series of three images of women, one of a black woman and another of a Latina woman, each with the words, we the people from the US constitution, followed by protect each other and defend dignity. This one reads, we the people are greater than fear. The three together, I believe are meant to convey Feminism, diversity, and unity in the face of a sexist, racist, and divisive president. But they also convey the terms of inclusion of a Muslim woman. She is associated with fear that we must overcome, and she is the only one whose image includes the American flag, which she is literally wearing on her body and through her hijab, resignifying signifying for Muslimness through patriotism. And it it was really striking to me how uncritically this image circulated among those who attended these rallies via Facebook and other arenas, especially given that the US flag is not commonly on display in progressive arenas. My argument is that this image actually quite beautifully illustrates a dynamic that's long been true, that even within liberal discourses, the standards of acceptability of Muslims are distinct. The fear of Muslims is the baseline, and to, overcome, and to avoid becoming an object of fear, one must abide by what would otherwise be seen as an excessive display of patriotism. So moving into my theoretical framework. Um, so my central argument is that the book, uh, in the book, is that the most broadly circulating images of Muslims as objects of sympathy and tolerance in the context of the war on terror con- Um, contribute to the racialization of Muslims by producing them as a population of risk. Ruth Wilson Gilmore defines racism as a system of domination, exclusion, and negligence that produces and exploits group differentiated vulnerability to premature death. Jody Melamed describes racialization as an apparently mutual and rational sorting mechanism that produces differential relations of human value and valuelessness. In the 21st century, one of the major projects of racialization, um, which I understand as a production of expendable populations has been the post 9-11 wars, which have led directly to over 900,000 deaths. And that's estimated by Brown University's Watson Institute um, and does not actually include the indirect death toll via destroyed infrastructure, malnutrition and environmental devastation. Globally, these wars have caused the displacement of at least 38 million people who have faced conditions of inadequate food, shelter, water, sanitation, and healthcare, a form of negligence that constitutes slow death. Within this context, stories about sympathetic and tolerable Muslims has not produced a counter discourse, um, has not actually sought to challenge the logics or goals of the war in terror, but rather has added layers of complexity to the racialization process more specifically I'm arguing that Muslims can be deemed that who can be deemed by the. US census categories to be of any race so in the. US we have we use categories like white Asian and black um, that even though they uh, Muslims fit within any of these racial categories um, they have been also racialized as Muslims in ways that overlap and interact with other racial categorizations and I'm leaving aside the complications around the absence of a Arab Middle Eastern category, Um, and that their production as a population of risk is a flexible and dynamic form of racialization that fits within liberalism's post-racial ideology by seeming to be neutral and rational. And so I want to explain how this racialization process occurs through two concepts of of racism, Um, cultural racism and population racism, Both of which move on from kind of the more traditional idea of racism as an attribution of inherent biological differences based on a reading of the body, particularly through skin color, hair texture, and so on. So um, so I'd like to explain these concepts, which um, I think are really important to understanding the kind of uh, dynamics of racialization in relation to Muslims abroad and the U.S. and how they interact with each other. So um, cultural racism has been theorized by a number of scholars, uh, many of whom draw from Etienne Balibar, who writing about the French relationship to Arab immigrants in the 1990s, argued that culture can function as a way of locking individuals and groups a priori into a genealogy, into a determination that is immutable and intangible in origin. In other words, individuals in these groups are seen as being wholly shaped by their cultural heredity. Um, And so one example of this kind of cultural racism um, was political scientist Samuel Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations thesis, developed after the end of the Cold War, which imagined the world as made up of distinct, homogenous and unchanging civilizations that were really determined by culture and religion. And he argued, that although there were many civilizations, Islamic civilization was the least amenable to coexistence. And as he put it in really simple and boldly racist terms, um, Islam has bloody borders. So this cultural racism was very important uh, geopolitically in constructing Islam as a global threat and helped to justify uh, continued US militarism despite the defeat of communism. So uh, population racism is a concept that I borrow from the work of Patricia Clough to describe a way of seeing individuals through the lens of population. Populations as a concept foreground how demography and statistics have changed our way of understanding diversity within races. Rather than seeing people as types, which is kind of the more cultural racist approach who necessarily exhibit certain traits, we see them as members of populations with distinct distributions of capacities and risks that are ascertainable through statistical analysis of probabilities. So while population racism relies on that us-them divide that's produced in cultural racism, right, so there is that them them still exists as a kind of meaningful category. The them is produced as an internally diverse population. Um, So there's this dynamic relationship between these two uh, formations. Um, We often hear that racism homogenizes groups of people through stereotypes and that kind of like showing diversity is how we can be anti-racist, but population racism captures racialization as a construction of risk within a population that's assumed to have variability, that's assumed to be diverse. That variability, though, um, never undermines the coherence of the population category never undermines the fact that we think about Muslims being a certain way versus Christians or other categories. Um, Rather, statistical analysis is supposed to reveal these kind of distinct patterns, for example, different rates of support for LGBTQ rights among different populations, which then reinforces that the categories are meaningful. So instead of arguing that all Muslims are inherently irrational and violent, which would be a cultural racist kind of formulation. The argument becomes that Muslims are at greater risk of radicalization, even as the vast majority of Muslims may be recognized as opposing terrorism and so on. So, um, so Muslims are a diverse population, but they're seen as containing within them a distinct threat that requires monitoring and surveillance of, of all Muslims. So in seeing people through the lens of population, diversity becomes an element to be measured and managed. And that happens through this concept that I use um, of variables of assessment that then refers to these kind of these mechanisms. And they're largely in the in the form of kind of tests or questions that are posed to Muslims around issues around genders and sexuality, religion and secularism, uh, views on tolerance, loyalty to the US or or quote unquote Western interests. And so it's the consistency and the application of these particular kind of tests, these variables of assessment that actually typifies population racism. So it's not that racism is exhibited only in portrayals of Muslims as disloyal, but it's the regular testing of Muslims on their loyalty that actually um, is, is the form that this racism takes. And one of the effects is that it closes off the possibility of Muslims actually uh, having a space for critiquing U.S. imperialism because that's a that's already seen as a sign that one is unacceptable. Um, So getting into the book more uh, uh, I I have the chapters are kind of divided into two different uh, groups. So uh, some of my case studies analyze uh, discourses of tolerance that are primarily towards Muslim Americans and others look at tolerant at um, articulations of sympathy towards Muslims abroad. And so uh, the two chapters that are noted here focus on representations of Muslim Americans as objects of tolerance which I argue take on a kind of surveillance approach where Muslim Americans are continuously measured against these variables of assessment. Um, now, the two chapters that focus on Muslims and Muslim-majority societies uh, generally articulate a modified cultural racism that casts these societies as vastly different, backward, violent, oppressive in key ways, but then brings some sympathetic Muslims across a civilizational divide, making them like us. And this then s- serves to reinforce the variables of assessment by producing ideas about the riskiness of Muslims as a population. Um, And the final chapter is kind of bridges these, um, focusing on the 2015 so-called refugee crisis. It looks at, um, it demonstrates how refugees both attest to the violence of their home countries. So in that sense, aligning with the cultural racism, but then become objects of assessment in the media and also quite literally through the vetting systems that determine whether or not they deserve assistance. One of my recurring questions is why do some stories garner our attention or elicit our deep sympathy while so many others are ignored and one method i use is to look at how a story changes in the retelling how it's simplified or elaborated upon in the process of the circulation of that story to understand what makes this that story so compelling to its audience so um, I want to be very clear that even when I'm looking at specific individuals, my analysis is not of them as people, but rather how ideas about them have circulated. So this is um, one of my cases. Um, it's actually only one portion of one, one of my chapters where I look at representations of empowered Muslim women. Um, and, of course, here I'm focusing on Malala Yousafzai, a, a Russian Pakistani education activist who, as a teenager, became an international icon of the struggle for gender equality in Muslim societies when she was targeted for her activism and shot by the Taliban. While she had an international profile prior to the attack, it was the moment of her victimization that raised her to the level of global icon and her status was further affirmed two years later when she became the youngest recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. While Yusuf Zai's story fits an Orientalist narrative of Muslim women's oppression, which has a much longer history dating to colonial times, it also disrupts an image of Muslim women as silent, passive victims and creates a potential space for recognizing Muslim women's voice and agency. The power of Ma'ala's story is in this combination. The challenge she inhabits as an activist Muslim girl, while also reaffirming conceptions of Muslim violence as monstrance, Monstrous and inexplicable. So, in line with what Evelyn Al Sultani has described as simplified complex representations, the audience feels the growth of that challenge um, of having their view of Muslims somehow changed through Malala um, and having one's mind and affective connections broadened while also seeing their ideas about violence in Muslim majority societies confirmed. So let me be clear that Yusuf Zai's memoir does offer some challenges to preconceptions about Muslim-majority societies. But in the retelling of her story, it is distilled down in in ways that neutralize its potential to challenge audiences. And um, in its portrayals of both Yusuf Zai herself, her community, and the Taliban, we see these kind of shifts where um, there's a simplification um, that orients us in a particular direction towards her story. So, for example, many reviewers make a point to describe Yusuf Zai's mother as illiterate, um, which is actually something I hardly remembered from the memoir. It's, it's something that I realized when I was reading the reviews and seeing how she was described in the media, media. And leaving out the memoir's portrayal of her as an active community member who regularly hosted people in her house and offered charity. Her mother then becomes an example of an uneducated girl in need of Malala's advocacy, rather than a woman who has made her way in the world despite challenges. In addition, when reviewers know Yusuf Zai's public speaking, they leave out the key influences of her father and grandfather, the latter an imam whose, whose son um, he sent to a state school rather than a religious school, a patriarch who upheld tribal con- customs, and a cosmopolitan man who read Persian and Arabic poetry. Rather than speaking of the influence of this kind of interesting, complex person, you eye's public speaking abilities become a natural talent and fit within a girl empowerment frame where resistance takes the form of self-expression against tradition. This individualistic frame rejects an idea that Muslim communities offer resources for resistance while making Yusuf's eye an anomaly rather than a product of her community. In similar ways, she is separated from and made to no longer represent other Muslim girls, their voice and agency, but only to reaffirm a story of Muslim patriarchy. So another dynamic in the circulation of Malala's story is that the violence of the Taliban is always rendered Fundamentally inexplicable and irrational, and separated from other forms of violence, even when there is an explicit disavowal of an idea that Islam is the source of violence. And um, Yusuf Saï often repeats the phrase, the phrase "Islam is peace." Um, the explanation of violence um, is so thin that a perversion of Islam by power-hungry sadistic men becomes the explanation. Violence becomes rooted in something distinctive about Muslims, psychology, culture, ideology, or something about the religion. What's missing is political, economic, and social analyses that historicize and contextualize the Taliban and would implicate many other actors, including the US without in any way justifying the Taliban. While Yusuf Zai's memoir does offer some historical and political context, what gets picked up in the circulation of her story is her representation of them as dark and dirty men. And so I wanna give an example of this from a piece um, uh, by Diane Sawyer. This is a 2020 segment um, called Unbreakable, One Girl Changing the World. And I wanna kind of focus on a few minutes in the show where Sawyer is explaining why the Taliban targeted um, and uh, targeted Yusuf's eye and also closed girls' schools. So Sawyer, let me show you that. So this is a series of um, images and if you look at them going down the screen, you'll kind of see the flow of, um, of this, this segment. So um, Sawyer begins with admonishing viewers. Um, and this is now at this point at the bottom left while the screen is showing images of men in prayer. Um, She says, and remember, worldwide, there are more than a billion Muslims, 1% in the shadows, the 1% who are dangerous, implacable when it comes to education of women. Um, Next, we see the Taliban who are shown wearing black turbans and face masks. And um, this kind of separation of the vast majority of Muslims from this tiny radical fringe seems to be established, but then of slowly over the course of these couple of minutes um, is is collapsed and particularly through the commentary of columnist Nicholas Kristoff who's shown here um, when he's brought in to explain the sources of um, this fear of girls education that the Taliban seem to exhibit oops sorry Um, so he says there is this perception that they are under assault and particularly the notion of honor of their women is kind of emblematic of that. And they see girls' education as a road toward women controlling their fertility and having fewer children, listening less to their husband, wanting to go back, go to work, kind of symbolizing the end of that way of life. And what I'd focus on here is Christoph's very ambiguous use of they. Um, which is explained initially with the shots of the Taliban, but these are soon replaced by images of other Pakistani men um, that are shown here on the right side. The analysis that these men are seeking to hold onto a way of life that has passed both ignores the actual changes that the Taliban sought to institute and conflates conservative Muslim men with the Taliban. And this 1%, um, seems to transform into potentially the majority of Pakistani or even Muslim men. And here we see that even as Muslims are described as an enormous and presumably diverse population, that one billion, this tiny minority comes to exemplify a threat that infects the whole population. Ultimately, Yousafzai's separation of the Taliban from other Pakistani men is dissolved as the culture of sexism becomes conflated with the violence of the Taliban. By contrast, uh, the violence of unmanned drone attacks in Pakistan, initiated under Bush and intensified under Obama's leadership during these same years, is given virtually no attention in the media. Um, And this is despite the fact that Yusuf Zai herself actually spoke out against drone attacks, Um, and they are noted in her memoir. But, um, But even in her memoir, there's never a single personalized account of a drone attack. And so to give you a sense of what's being left out, I'd like to kind of quickly share a story, which I take from this report by a joint Stanford University NYU Lawsuit School Clinic, um, where they describe how in 2011, in a town um, of Datak Hill in North Waziristan, a group of men gathered, including tribal leaders, respected community elders, and four members of the Taliban for a government sanctioned mediation of a local dispute. Ignoring the drones flying overhead on the assumption that they were not targets, these men were nevertheless hit by several missiles, leading to the deaths of at least 42 people and injuries of 14. These deaths had devastating ripple effects on their community in part because the men were both community leaders and economic providers of their families. So when comparing representations of violence, it is clear that we turn in horror towards some violence because we see it as rooted in some way in Islam and refuse to draw connections to violence at the hands of others, particularly those aligned with the US and and those deemed to abide by modern secular rationalities. Discourses about sympathetic Muslims thereby reinforce the notion that irrational violence is a distinct risk associated with Muslims as a population. While discourses about Muslims abroad tend to be more absolutist, placing Muslims in definitive boxes as either good or bad, liberal discourses about Muslims in the U.S. are more ambivalent and shifting and incorporate the task of measuring threat against specific um, profiles. So this leaves Muslim Americans, particularly public figures, very vulnerable as they navigate a minefield of constant assessment which speak less to who they are and more to the political media configuration of the particular moment and what they are made to represent. In one chapter, I look at Park 51, which was dubbed the Ground Zero mosque, um, which you might recall was an Islamic cultural center proposed to be built two blocks north of the World Trade Center site alongside a controversy that had happened a few years before around a proposal to found an Arabic-English dual language public school in Brooklyn called Khalil Gibran International Academy. Both of these projects were led by very well-established moderates, and I put that in quotes, Muslim Americans, and both projects failed when former supporters withdrew their support. Um, As an aside, in both cases, their key individuals and groups have since apologized for, for their opposition to these projects. Um, so to give you a sense of how dramatically perceptions of a moderate Muslim American could change in a very short period of time, we can look at these three quotes referencing Debbie al the founding principal and lead on the Gibran Academy project. The first speaks to al widely established reputation and credentials. She really did epitomize the ideal patriotic bridge-building Muslim who is deeply committed to interfaith dialogue. Um, and the second quote from Mayor Bloomberg, um, who is um, accepting Alman Tasser's resignation, we see a kind of tepid defense, um, even as he was formerly a supporter of the project. Um, and this phrase, she's certainly not a terrorist, I mean, is really striking to me to think that he feels any need to to make such a statement, but it speaks to how dramatically um, views of her had shifted um, due to an attack on her. And third is is a quote from the head of the teachers union, Randy Weingarten, who pulled her support from the project due to a single interview, and is actually one of the people who has since um, much more recently apologized for this shift. Um, The interview that um, that caused the kind of dramatic shift was clearly a trap set for al-Montaser that asked her to speak to a matter that had no direct relationship to her credentials or to the vision of the school. So it was clearly a test that was that was um, po- posed just for her because she was Muslim and Arab. And I'll get to that in a minute. So how is it possible for al-Montaser to lose her liberal defenders despite her life work? There were three dynamics I would highlight that were actually present in both the Gibran Academy and Park 51 cases. Both projects were explicitly created to produce cross-cultural understanding and tolerance, and both defenders and opponents of these projects operated within the same set of assumptions that in our post 9 11 world, Muslims have a special responsibility to promote, promote tolerance, to address conflicts, and to promote peace. Beneath this view is the assumption that Muslims have some sort of collective accountability for 9-11. And the second common theme between the two two controversies is that Arabic words become affective weapons that circulated swiftly across media platforms, casting a person as a threat, regardless of the actual argument being made. Um, in the case of the school, the right used and the center left media outlets repeated words like madrasa and jihad uh, for months as affective weapons to associate the school and the language it was to teach with terrorism. This produced the backdrop within which al-Mantasr could be quickly recast as unacceptable. The power of these words was that they traveled easily across contexts via images, sound bites, quotations and carried so much ambiguity that they could be used in different ways to suit the context. Um, So their foreignness and their ambiguity, especially with a word like madrasa fomented fear, but also allowed a kind of plausible deniability. So for example, um, someone could use the word madrasa and then say, Oh no, but that word actually means school in Arabic and imply that they were not, um, you know, enacting any kind of, um, Islamophobia in that that usage of that term. So um, the third component that's common to these two cases is that uh, the leads on both projects were individually subject to tests that drew on variables of assessment to produce discomfort and questioning about their intentions. In Al-Mutasser's case, it was her failure to pass such a test created by a New York Post reporter that led to her forced resignation. Alma was asked to comment on a T-shirt that had the words Intifada NYC on them. Um, she responded as an educator to refer to the dictionary definition of Intifada and later explained that she did not think the organization behind behind the shirt, which was a girls media group that she was actually not in any way affiliated with, um, that she she said she didn't think that they were calling for a Palestinian style uprising. She was criticized widely, including by her former supporters. And the phrase that kept coming up over and over again was that she had failed to condemn the word. Um, And all the commentary that followed, including defenses of Al muntasar there's a message of unity on the unacceptability of the word intifada. And essentially, um, that the political perspectives of Arab-Americans who might think that intifada refers to the legitimate uprisings of Palestinians to the illegal occupation of the West Bank and Gaza by Israel is not even even an idea that's allowed to be discussed. Of course, al was only subject to this test because of her identity, and it was her tie to a Muslim and Arab population that made her vulnerable to such an attack. Um, Ultimately, the space of acceptability for public Muslims has been so narrow that it is remarkable when someone achieves. Oops, sorry. <laughs> um, when someone achieves that position, as did Quzir Khan, the Pakistani military father, who spoke at the 2016 Democratic National Convention, and I'm going to end with this example. Um, in this speech, he famously pulled out a pocket constitution and offered to lend it to Donald Trump, effectively arguing that he, as a Muslim American,s had a better grasp on fundamental principles and values of this country. This was undeniably a very powerful moment, but it rested on establishing Khan as beyond reproach and an an immigrant who achieved the American dream, the father of a soldier who had made the ultimate sacrifice giving his life in the line of duty. Aligning multiculturalism with militarism, Khan played an important role for Democrats who would rather put forward a Muslim military man than to speak concretely of the Syrian refugee crisis that Trump was using in that time period to foment anti-Muslim hysteria. Completely outside the frame of these discourses is the possibility of questioning U.S. violence. For example, of noting that Khan's son was an occupying soldier and he was killed a month after the release of the Abu Ghraib photos that documented pervasive sexualized torture of Iraqi prisoners by U.S. soldiers. The violence of occupation of US militarism and their role in contributing to the refugee crisis were all set aside. And instead, we were brought to marvel at a Muslim man who is more patriotic and pro-American than many liberals think is good manners. So we see the space of acceptability of Muslims was made very specific and narrow, shaped by an assumption that Muslim Americans are connected to an unruly population to use Belguni Sheth's words. Nevertheless, even Khan was not insulated from the possibility of having the variables of assessment wielded against him. And this quote at the bottom from Trump um, speaks to the fact that that sexism attaches to Muslim men very differently than it does to Christian white men like Trump. Um, And so uh, this quote was actually resulted in um, a response article from uh, Kazir Khan's, um, from Ghazala Khan, uh, where she's described why she had chosen not to spoke, speak so that he would no longer be seen as a patriarchal man who had forced his wife to be silent. So overall, my analysis shows that the figure of the terrorists and ideas about violence in Muslim-majority contexts frame all these widely circulating liberal representations of Muslims. And this is um, and this is what bridges liberal and right-wing discourses, thereby establishing the fundamental compatibility between them as far as the position of Muslims in U.S. society and globally is concerned. Um, thank you so much. Um, I'm all done now. I will stop my share. But if anyone wants to contact me, I'm happy to share my email address.
0: Professor Rastegar, I just want to mention that uh, Professor uh, Amantanser actually spoke at our institute back in 2019 on her book, Uh, Leading While Muslim, the Experiences of American Muslim Principles. Ah, Great. Yeah. So if folks are interested in uh, Dr. Debbie's particular case, uh, you can uh, watch that lecture on our website. Yeah,
1: thanks. Thank you. Um, Thanks for that talk. And I. I. Yeah, I was just thinking how rich, like, the case studies are. This is, um, I was just interested in actually something from the description of your book, where you said that you look at polls. Um, and So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you use that as a site of analysis um, and data. And um, I was curious also to know, was it, like, polls given to Muslims or polls about Muslims or just... Um, in general, how do you use them? Yeah, um, so that
2: comes in, um, in my first chapter that looks at um, New York Times human interest stories about Muslims in the six months following the 9-11 attacks. Um, and um, and the way that those produce this idea of variability and diversity within this population. Um, and I end that chapter by looking at the Pew Research Center's polling of Muslim Americans, which they did a series of polls over different time periods. I look at the first two because it's more correspondent with the period um, that I'm analy- analyzing in that chapter. And also because in that, in that period, they have a question that asks about views on suicide bombing. And this was picked up in the media. So, you know, one of my you know, central kind of methods is to think about circulation, what gets picked up and how it gets um, taken up in different ways. And this poll gets reported in um, opposing ways. So some people, you know, some outlets uh, report Muslim Americans are mainstream, they're well integrated, they're assimilated, they're happy, right? And then others pick out this one data point and um, find ways to manipulate it to say that Muslim Americans are um, support uh, terrorist violence. And it's, you know, it's very specific how they cut the data. Um, if you look at the data, it's actually quite a small number, right? Um, but they look, but they cut the data by only looking at young Muslim Americans, and then they look at everyone who said anything that sounds like maybe, you know, maybe it doesn't have to be a strong kind of position. Um, that suicide bomb- bombings might be justified in some con- context, right? And so um, this... Be this you know one of the uh, headlines is you know tiny minority uh, huge threats something along those lines so this idea that the um, that small numbers can be attached to a population in a way that really um, that really infects the whole population that it, it, it changes the view of all of them right it's not about um, kind of separating right even as the polling seems to be trying to do that right um, and it's, it, I mean, ultimately, it's that Muslims get asked that question, right? And the question is not comparable to the questions that get asked of other people. So, if you look at actually, Americans support of, of um, uh, so, you know attacks that have civilian casualties. It's much higher, right? So, Americans don't have any problems with civilians dying in, in you know during military um, uh, attacks and so on. So, um, that's a kind of comparable data point that that would surprise surprise many of us, I think, in the other direction.
1: Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, there is a question in the Q&A, um, so I'll just read it. Um, it's from Betsy Carlson. Um, I'm a mental health practitioner interested in working with the Muslim population. What would you say are the challenges and barriers that Muslim face, Muslims face when seeking treatment how can we best serve this population? And any insight would be appreciated.
2: So um, I'll start by saying that, you know, I did not study Muslim populations directly. So I am I certainly can't speak from the particularities of that experience. Um, I mean, I really appreciate, um, you know, that this, the work that you would be doing. And I think it's very important and, and certainly it is um, helpful and important to understand the way that Muslims have been framed in the media, which is what I'm doing. Um, I think it, you know, certainly shapes our senses of self and how we navigate our identities, but I, I, sorry, I can't presume to say how that has actually affected Muslims, right? But, but I will say that when, um, when one has to navigate, um, these kind of highly binary or polarizing discourses, um, uh, there has to be a kind of psychological wear and tear. Um, and also that, um, that having some sensitivity to kind of what's not been allowed to, to be said, right? Um, what are the things that have been, um, silenced? What kinds of political positions have been disallowed? Um, that that's really important to being able to open up a space of communication. Um which I assume it's central <laughs> for therapy right
1: yeah, you know um that question and your answer, and I was trying to quickly find it, but I couldn't um i there was a report um I think last year around the mental health of Muslim youth in the United states, and um and I think like speaking to your answer, mitra just there was a there was a lot in that report of uh, some of the qualitative data just about you know um, the racial framing or like the framing of being a terrorist as really impacting the person like uh, the, these young people's mental health and how they saw themselves and how they knew that people were seeing them um, and the impact that that had so. Yeah
2: yeah and I mean at the same time there are people who are really trying to navigate that and respond to it, right, and trying to step outside those kind of very narrow parameters. Um, There is um, an excellent documentary about Australian, uh, Muslim Australian artists, and it's called um, UC Monsters, and it's really about kind of uh, very directly engaging those representations and how Muslim artists in Australia are kind of ta- navigating that um, and, and countering it through these very, I mean, kind of powerful, um, uh, you know, I can't, <laughs> you know, I can't to describe them, but very powerful. And I, I recommend, you know, watching that as an example of um, ways that, you know, people are trying to navigate and also build community around uh, these kind of other ways of thinking about identity
0: how long did it take you to pull together the research for the book and uh how difficult was it to you know sort of get it published
2: um I mean I this this has been a long project for me because it started in graduate school so and it was very incremental like as I said my kind of arrival at the argument was was much much later than when the project actually started right so I was, I think the initial piece was looking at the reception of Bazar and FBCs beating Lolita in Tehran. Um, and from there, I looked at this case of um, LGBTQ activists responding to the executions of two boys in Iran. And so those two cases were very much about thinking about what represent, how it is that people in the US are really uh, kind of engaging Iran in particular Um, And trying to have a kind of sympathetic and supportive way of engaging, even as uh, these stories then kind of were very very narrowly formulating what those places were about. Right. So so that was initially the project. And I thought it was all about secularism and, you know, um, uh, and very much about I don't know that that, that it wasn't really a, it, the idea that this was about racialization wasn't really on my radar at that point yet. It was really much more about values. Um, so, um, so it was it was when I started looking at then the portrayals of Muslim Americans that I started to see the connections between these two kinds of representations and that they were. Different, But they were kind of symbiotic in a way that I needed a bigger framework, and that's how I arrived at kind of thinking about racialization as a as a theoretical framework that allowed me to understand these these two kinds of um, these modes of engagement as interacting with each other. Yes. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know if that was a direct enough answer. It was <laughs> a long time. <laughs>
1: Um, Yeah, I was just thinking when you're answering that, you know, there's some, I've seen, um, sometimes I've had this in my own classes, that there's like a pushback against talking about Muslims and racialization, Um, and sometimes people say, well, it's a religion, Um, it's not a race, Um, and so I appreciate that you, right, you're showing a different, I mean, you are showing racialization um, but kind of bringing nuance to that so that this argument that, well, religion and race are two separate things um, kind of gets gets challenged a little bit, um, which I think is great.
2: Oh, and on the publishing piece, I, you know, I, I think it was just like any experience of a first book. I sent it out and it's had different <laughs> levels of interest. And, um, you know, it, I think it was pretty fully formed by the time I was doing that. So for that reason, it was easier than if it had been maybe earlier in the project.
1: You know, when I was looking at that first image uh, that you shared, the shepherd fairy image of the woman in the hijab, it's an American flag. Um, This might be a slightly random question. I'm not sure, but I've been noticing that there's actually more images of women in hijab in representations um, of diversity in the United States and inclusion, Um, you know, even like um, in Canva, this like, you know, like this uh, graphic art app, um, app or website, I don't know what to call it, this program that you can make like flyers, but I've been noticing that there have been these like standard images of um, women in hijab and it's supposed to stand in as Muslim in a in a particular way. Um, but yeah I don't know what if you've noticed that and if um yeah just what your thoughts are on that I guess.
2: Yeah I mean I don't know you know it's um it makes sense in some in some ways, right? It's an easy signifier and it's an an intention to be inclusive. Um, and of course, there are lots of Muslim women who don't wear a scarf, right? So, and it's just, so it um, it's reductive. It also focuses on women and not men, but on the other hand, it is the signifier, right? So um, since that has become that that thing that people recognize is, is meaning that, meaning that we're including Muslims, right? I, I'm not sure what other ways exist, right? to To mark no. that inclusion visually. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I I don't know. I mean, I can see it as as a challenge for anyone who's who's doing that kind of visual design work. There, I think there there must be other ways. I'm, um, you know, to yeah. th- to think outside the box. I think uh, outside of that box. But I I think that people don't. Probably the problem is is that the shorthand is so easy that people have not tried to find other ways to yeah. You
1: know, um,
0: I just want to remark that in regards to that image that you showed, right? We we, we did use it <laughs> in our publication, Asian American Matters. Yeah. Uh, this particular photo was taken on the eve of the presidential uh, inauguration. So we found it powerful enough to use it as one of the uh, chapter images in our publication.
2: Yeah, it is powerful. I mean, that's the thing, right? These are really powerful stories, actually. And so when I when I critique them, it's not to say they shouldn't, you know, exist. It's that, um, or that they shouldn't even, you know, be circulated is to understand where their power is coming from and to think about, um, what that does in the world. Right. So, um, if we, if, if we need to see the Muslim woman wearing a flag, right. Um, well, what is that saying about, you know, um, what the assumptions are about who who she would be without it? I mean, I I mean I, it's simplifying a little bit, but there is a way in which um, you know I just keep looking for American flags in these kind of progressive contexts. Otherwise, and they don't exist, so it it has to signify this kind of um, inclusion via patriotism, and that that's the that's the mandate, um, and the. Um, Khizr Khan example is also, I mean, clearly that. But then there are, you know, there are people who um, are trying to re-signify patriotism for Muslims, like Linda Sarsour, um, who's an activist in Brooklyn, and she talks about being patriotic, but being patriotic as someone who is part of a, um, a kind of tradition of dissent within the U.S., right? And so she puts herself kind of squarely within this country, but within a, a separate tradition that doesn't you know that says that her task is actually to make the country better by challenging it um, and by being in solidarity with um with other communities against you know anti-black racism anti-muslim racism right so so it's not so it's this kind of uh different formulation of what patriotism is and i mean that's just not captured in an image like that unfortunately
1: (laughs) yeah right um yeah, I was I was I'm struck. I mean I am thinking about what you're you know, it's like there's this um and as someone who teaches right Asian American studies, um I, I sometimes I grapple with how the framing of inclusion and um the grounds of that inclusion, right, for these different populations and um, and what that means at different moments in particular, actually. So yeah. So think, yeah. Yeah question <laughs> um, well i mean you're,
2: you're making me think of you know refugees right now and so you know that seems that's a very stark example that you know to, to compare the ways that ukrainians are being portrayed to the refugees in 2015 um from syria and other you know, other parts um not just how they were, obviously, how they were received in Europe, but also how they were portrayed in the U.S. media. Um, And so, you know, um, one of my chapters looks at the um, Humans of New York project around uh, the representations of refugees from Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan in that time period. And and even as these images are really powerful and that they're telling people stories and they're really humanizing in a certain way, they still are abiding by these very specific norms of, of, you know, showing that someone is, you know, a good upstanding citizen, right, that it's, they're going to be a you know, good immigrant, they're going to make a good Muslim American. Um, and there are even kind of more, you know, the kind of pro-American-ness that you hear from someone who survived war in Iraq, right, at the hands of U.S. soldiers, is just really shocking to me but that that's kind of what's demanded and, and what's produced without any question. And yeah. this is
1: what makes makes them sympathetic, right? Yeah. have you Do you have any preliminary thoughts on like a comparison between how the Ukrainian refugees are kind of being shown or talked about? Um, yeah, I, I was going to add, especially um, as I, I've been seeing more and more Maybe just in kind of left media about um you know there the there is like this one arm of white nationalism that's kind of occurring um in some of the in some spaces um just a general comparison that you've been seeing yeah i mean um, i I mean there are some you know
2: there is the obvious kind of racial component right so that's I think, very clear cut. And, you know, the most stark examples were when we were hearing reports, um, maybe they're still coming, I don't know, <laughs> but, of uh, you know, uh, people who are African, who are students in Ukraine or South Asian students in Ukraine who were trying to cross the borders, and were being stopped when, you know, white Ukrainians were not, right? And um, so the racial piece is just, it's, it's very explicit, right? So there's almost no analysis to be made there, (laughs) because it's just, it's there. Um, And then there are these kind of caveats where, you know, Ukraine is right next to these countries, and, you know, um, and so there is a kind of you know, like a feeling of a direct threat That's also connects to those countries that are receiving them, right? So I think, you know, there are differences. Obviously, the world is complicated, but um, but you can't deny that, um, you know, we're talking about 3 million, you know, Ukrainians coming into Europe in the span of a month compared to, you know, 3 million left Syria over years and didn't all go to Europe, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, but the moral panic, right, around it, um, in, in the, that 2014-15 period was just so different. And um, we see that, you know, in this context, like people are capable of being generous, right? <laughs> it is possible, right? There isn't a lack of resources, even for people who are themselves facing hardship. There, There is a possibility of stretching yourself and being generous, right? And it would be nice if that kind of, um, that, that element of what's happening right now could be kind of held onto and remembered and something could be built out of that that would help more people in these kinds of situations.
0: Uh, Thank you very much, Professor Rastegar, a wonderful presentation, and Professor Varghese uh, for moderating the Q&A, and also to our co-sponsors for uh, uh, inviting folks to this talk. Uh, You can purchase the paperback version of Professor Rastegar's book, uh, uh, Tolerance and Risk, from the University of Minnesota Press website for $27. uh, The hard copy is much, much more expensive, so Mm -hmm. uh, the the, uh, paperback 27, and the link is available on this talk's webpage. Mm -hmm. So uh, with that, uh, everyone enjoy your evening. Remember to be an upstander if you see a fellow person in need, and we look forward to seeing everyone next month, uh, which is uh, uh, Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, and with that, good night. Thank you very much, Professor Rastegar, and thank you very much.
1: Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Bye.